Hello, my name is Andrew Gary and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. SEG held its 87th annual meeting at Houston in September. The opening session represents the official start to the meeting. Craig Beasley, the general chair for Houston, opened the session. Bill Abriel, president of SEG, presented his State of the Society address. The keynote is given by Stephen Greenlee, president of ExxonMobil Exploration Company and vice president of ExxonMobil Corporation. We are happy to bring you the 2017 opening session and presidential address in its entirety. Stay with us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues, I cannot tell you how happy I am to be here today and to be able to say, welcome to Houston. Now, before I get going, <clears throat> as you might guess, I have a few slides, but before I get going on that, uh, just a few housekeeping things. Uh, you may have noticed when you came in, there's uh, cards on some of the chairs and uh, something to write with. We'll be taking questions for all of the speakers after we all finish. So please uh, write down your questions on the cards. And when you have them completed, even if it's early in the program, just raise your hand and uh, someone from uh, the uh, SEG will come and pick up the cards and collect them. And then we'll answer them all uh, after the final speaker. We've got an exciting program today. After, after my little talk, uh, we're going to have uh, SEG President Bill Abriel up, and then we'll have uh, Steve Greenlee from ExxonMobil to talk as well. So I think you're going to be very excited by this. Before I get going, though, I'd like to uh, recognize uh, Kuwait Oil Company, KOC, uh, as they're the uh, prime sponsor for this event. So let's give Kuwait Oil Company a big hand. Thanks a lot. Well, you know, I said I was, I was happy to be here, and uh, <clears throat> that's because I think this meeting has, uh, has been a challenge in a number of regards. And when I took the job of, uh, of, of being the general chair a couple of years ago, I had uh, trepidation because the oil industry is in uh, some difficult times, and I knew that, you know, there would be things in the meeting that we're going to have to respond to that. I had no idea the challenges that we would face. So let's talk about that a little bit and let me give uh, all credit where it's due. Uh, the steering committee that I had to work with uh, was just outstanding. You see the photos and the names. I'm not going to go through all of them uh, at this point. You know them all very well. Uh, but everyone in their area of responsibility stepped up with some very creative ideas. Uh, and, and help make this meeting uh, a go, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great success. Uh, special thanks to some people not on the committee, though. The Geophysical Society of Houston, the GSH, uh, Tommy Rape, president, was a great help uh, dealing with some of the things having to do with Hurricane Harvey. Uh, I'd like to also recognize the members and, and uh, volunteers who are working here who uh, <clears throat> have been affected by Harvey themselves. It's been a big burden on them. The SEG staff was, as usual, outstanding. We often uh, forget what a great job they do. Um, and of course, uh, the SEG Foundation and Board of Directors have played a role. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. And finally, the City of Houston and the George R. Brown Convention Center uh, did everything possible to help us bring this show off. I would say, no thanks to Harvey. 
Maybe there's a silver lining. Maybe Harvey did help us a little bit because it created a great uh, spirit in the city and in the uh, meeting committee. And so maybe there is uh, something good that comes out of it. But I just want to give you a little bit of perspective. If you're not a native to Houston, you may not recognize this picture, but uh, this is an aerial photo uh, approximately where we are, a little bit to the uh, west. uh, And... uh, it's looking north, so it's looking in that direction towards uh, the bayou. So there's actually two bayous there that you can see in the picture. There's the uh, Buffalo Bayou and the White Oak Bayou. Now, uh, Houston was actually founded in 1837 at about that location. It's a place they call Allen's Landing. And uh, so I don't know why they build cities on rivers. You know, rivers flood, but that's the way it is. And uh, so just to show you a little bit of of Harvey, uh, this is, you know, geophysicists love before and after pictures, so that's what I'm going to show you. This is before, and this is after. So uh, that may have gone by a little bit quickly, so let's look at before again, and during the hurricane after. So you may have seen in my uh, note about the effect of Hurricane Harvey on the meeting that downtown was not affected much. And that's not quite true. You can see there the downtown area on that side where the bayou is was quite affected. But if you uh, notice at the bottom right-hand portion of the photo, you can see where the water line is. So uh, strangely, uh, going south towards the Gulf of Mexico, Generally, we would expect the profile to be going down to sea level, right? So, uh, on, but on the, on the macro scale, that's not true. This part of downtown is actually a higher elevation. It's probably a fault in there or something. I don't, I'm not a geologist, but there's probably a reason for it. Uh, but you can see the water line there, so it, uh, it did not uh, encroach up into this area. The second thing that we were fortunate with Harvey was that it was not really a bad hurricane in terms of wind. And in Houston, when you have wind, all the trees we have start to lose branches, they fall down, they knock down the power lines, and you can be without power for months. And so this didn't happen with Hurricane Harvey. It was only water, okay? I say that uh, with a little bit of uh, tongue in cheek. Because uh, I don't mean to make light of it, a a lot of people were absolutely devastated and uh, the destruction is is more out to the west and away from the downtown area, south and east. Everywhere had problems, but fortunately uh, the airport, the uh, infrastructure downtown was not so affected. So we were lucky to get that done. Uh, Some of you may know, I, I don't get any sympathy for this for sure, but I missed the whole thing. I was off scuba diving in Indonesia. It wasn't totally relaxing. We were up every morning at six looking on the internet to see what the flood gauge is because I live on the banks of Buffalo Bayou. And, uh, but the flood gauges were telling us that where we were was probably going to be okay. And uh, it turned out that way. So when I returned on the Saturday of that week, I decided to come downtown and look for myself. And these are some photos that I took Uh, on that Saturday, September the 3rd. And uh, this is uh, the Hilton just right out there looking down the street uh, towards the George George R. Brown 
and the embassy suites is on the left. And so there was no sign of a hurricane downtown, and uh, just across the street, Discovery Green was fine. So uh, this is the kind of thing that led us to believe uh, that the meeting was probably going to be okay. The SEG staff and board of directors had a large due diligence to, to do, and they did it. Uh, they came down themselves. They talked with all the business leaders and uh, community leaders here in the downtown area, and we were convinced that uh, Houston was going to pull it off for us, and so we made the commitment to come. And uh, this is uh, to show you that it wasn't completely uh, pristine as far as Harvey was concerned. Uh, all the news networks were camped out just right over there at that corner. <laughs> so this did make me wonder a bit. There was uh, quite a contingent of evacuees, as many as 10,000 people in this hall, actually, uh, at the time. But they assured us that the plan was that that was a short-term thing and that any people remaining would be long gone by the time our convention started. And I just want to be clear, they didn't move people out because of us. Uh, that was the plan from FEMA and the Red Cross to begin with. So we uh, struggled with this for a while, and once we decided it was a go, then, uh, then we had to make it happen. And uh, just to show you uh, how things moved along, this was uh, uh, on the 21st, looking down the street here, and so indeed uh, the city lived up to their promises. Now, just to underscore that this was not a, a no, no hassle thing, this is a film I took of the Buffalo Bayou. It's about a half mile upstream from my house. And uh, this was actually after the water had gone down. That whole bridge was covered. Uh, so. It was quite a dramatic storm, and uh, I could show you lots of pictures but, uh, of the devastation, but we won't, we won't go there. Um, we decided very early on that uh, this meeting should not just go as planned, that we should make some recognition of Harvey and some special effort to uh, thank the city and, uh, and, and recognize our own members who, who have had uh, uh, issues. Um, so one of the things I want to point out here is that uh, the SEG Foundation immediately stepped up and has made a $100,000 donation to Harvey Relief Charity. So let's have a round of applause for the SEG Foundation. And we want to encourage all of our members to uh, donate as well as, as they can. So we have uh, set up uh, w with the Houston Food Bank, there's actually a booth down near registration where you can make a donation on-site. It's staffed by people from the Houston Food Bank. Uh, we also uh, have taken advantage uh, of the situation to ask the mayor's office to uh, provide a speaker for the, uh, the spouse's uh, luncheon. And uh, that was good because in the tough times we had, we didn't have a budget for a speaker. So this turned out, there's another silver lining in this cloud. Um, We've invited some of the city officials, the mayor, the police chief, uh, first responders, and so on, to uh, some of our events. I don't have word at the moment uh, what they will be attending, but we should expect to see them uh, somewhere around the convention this week. And uh, we also uh, have worked with the technical program committee to have a post-convention workshop uh, where the members want to investigate what can we do as geoscientists with our science, what can we do to help in such things. And uh, this has been very fruitful for us in the past. You may have heard of this little program called Geoscientists Without Borders. Uh, 
and <clears throat> that has a special session uh, as usual, but uh, that program was actually founded in response to members' concerns over natural disasters. In that case, it was the Boxing Day tsunami and uh, resulted in that program. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Maybe this uh, post-convention workshop will get some great ideas from our members and, and something else will come of it. I hope so. So that's our response to Harvey, but you know, uh, we had challenges to start with with this meeting because uh, when I wrote my Welcome to Houston letter to the membership, you know, I was all concerned and still am about uh, the situation in the oil industry. We've almost forgotten it with all the hurricane here in Houston, but uh, it's going to be easy to remember as we walk around the convention floor. And uh, so we, we felt that our duty as the steering committee was to uh, help focus on the value that the uh, meeting can bring to all of our members, the scientists, the exhibitors, uh, technologists, everyone comes here for a reason. And we asked ourselves, what is that reason? And of course, this is how we got the theme of the meeting, which is the place where technology and business can come together and meet. That's really, you know, why we're in this uh, society. It's to promote the interaction between the members, to sustain the science itself, but also to bring it into the commercial world. So we've asked ourselves, how do we get value? Well, of course we get value by going to the technical session. So we're not uh, cutting back on that in any way. In fact, this year we had a record number of submitted papers and a record number of papers that will be presented. So the technical program is very strong and we're not shortening that at all. But what we have done is try to create more time for everyone to interact on the exhibit floor. So as an example, I'm sorry, I apologize. We started at 8.30 this morning and my good friends know I do not like to get up early in the morning, but I'm here and I'm glad to see that you're here. But we shortened the opening session and we moved it up a little bit so that we finish at about 10 o'clock and that way we can encourage everyone then to spend uh, most of the morning on the convention floor. Um, the, ex the other thing that we did is to try to create a nice block of time in the middle of the day. So we've extended the lunch hour uh, to two hours uh, by, by, sh by cutting off the technical sessions uh, at noon and then starting them up at two again. We haven't cut back on the program, we just have more concurrent sessions, but that gives you two hours to go during lunch and walk around the exhibit floor and to further the value that you can get there, we've asked the exhibitors to submit uh, titles for the technical talks that they give in their booths along with a time slot so that you can look in the program and plan out your trip through the exhibit floor. And uh, I hope you take advantage of this. Look in the program, you'll, you'll see this. Uh, even if you don't make a formal schedule, make time to go and listen to what the companies are talking about because I tell you, it's, it's exciting. Um, well, the, the schedule is published in, in the program so you can see it there. The other thing we're doing to facilitate that after the technical sessions end at the lunch hour, we'll be opening up more doors so that wherever you are, you can go straight down to the convention floor. You don't have to make the long walk just to get into the official entrance. Um, and we've had to, I won't go into details, but we've had to rethink uh, some of the events that have been costing us money at, at meetings. For example, uh, I know some of you really love this, you presenters who go to the technical program, the technical program 
breakfast every morning, we, we cancel that. Uh, so uh, we'll just be doing it with special meetings uh, before each of the sessions in each of the rooms. Uh, the other thing that we did, we recognized the tough times and uh, higher workloads at companies, so we were able to push the abstract deadline back a month from its original date so that we had more time. And I'm sure this is one of the reasons that we were able to get a record number of papers submitted. Well, all of this has paid off uh, in terms of the exhibition. It, the space filled up very quickly. We actually had to add more exhibition space from the original projection. And I'm happy to say that as of yesterday when we made these slides that we've only had two exhibitors from Houston who had to pull out due to uh, issues with Hurricane Harvey. But there were two, so uh, let, let's don't minimize the fact that uh, a lot of the companies uh, have been under a little bit of uh, stress from this event. And just when we thought everything was going perfectly, and it was, yesterday afternoon, I don't know if you were here, but the power went out. So uh, that's a serious thing. People who were setting, still setting up in the hall had to leave the exhibition hall because of a safety issue. You can't, even if you can see to work, you can't stay in there. And um, it was touch and go. Um, it, we may not have had the icebreaker last night. It was, I mean, that's a serious thing when you have to miss the icebreaker. So it didn't happen. They got the power back on, everything. You couldn't even tell it last night. There was a few stressed-looking people in some of the booths, but, uh, you know, so that's hard to tell sometimes, too. So that all went well, and uh, I've, I've spoken long enough. Um, I'd just like to express my thanks again to everyone, the exhibitors who stuck with us, the members who have stuck with us. The registration looks like it was it's, it's higher than we expected. All of the people who have decided to attend, the volunteers, the office, authors, the staff, and so on. The foundation uh, has done a wonderful job here, and uh, I, I encourage you to get involved with the foundation if you're not already, and uh, the board of directors, and of course the city of Houston. But I'd like to give a, a special thanks to the members who have really sucked it up and come here even though they may have been affected. Now, I speak personally from this. This is my house uh, back in uh, 2008 when Hurricane Hike hit. And uh, so I know personally what happens. I had to move out for five months. And I know many of you are in that same position right now, but you come anyway, and we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Let's give a round of applause to all those people. Well, now I'd like to uh, turn and, and uh, go to the second part of our program where we're going to uh, introduce our first speaker. You all know him well, Bill Abriel. Uh, he's been an SEG member for uh, most of his, uh, even before his professional career, I understand. He, he did 36 years at Chevron. Uh, I, I knew him well there. I, I won't say he was a tough customer, uh, but uh, I will say he did a good job for Chevron. <laughs> He was the geophysical lead on many of their large projects. In fact, I, I think they wouldn't let him retire for a while, but he finally did retire. Uh, he's been very active in SEG throughout his career, including uh, organizing a student uh, section when he was in the university. He's uh, served on too many 
committees and boards to, to mention, but he was the uh, distinguished lecturer and also the distinguished instructor, so that's a, a very nice uh, accomplishment. He was the first vice president in 2012, and he's your 2016-2017 SEG president. So let's welcome Bill to the stage. Am I mic'd down? I cannot possibly tell you, Craig, how pleased I am to meet you on the stage here at this Houston convention. Craig has done an outstanding job of making this happen. We got close. We had to make a decision. Are we going to do this? Are we not going to do it? And uh, the day that we said we were going to go was the day that everybody lined up. And it's great to have the opportunity to have everybody focused on something that's successful. Nothing more fun for me than being here at the SEG convention. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit today, uh, and uh, <clears throat> I've got 150 slides, uh, <clears throat> but I've, I, I chose one out of every 10. So that gives us about, say, 15, maybe 16 slides. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I also uh, did a double check, and I said, you know, uh, what's the right way to, uh, to get warmed up? And the answer is always to tell a little joke, right? Except that my, uh, my wife and my daughter are lawyers, and they gave me a restraining order <laughs> and said, uh, Dorsey will like, appreciate that says, and I'll just paraphrase it, don't do it, you're not funny, it's not going to work, try to be adorable. And I said, well, that's not going to work, so, so what's our backup plan? And the answer is, give the talk. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone here, the attendees, speakers, exhibitors, et cetera, the first large conference in Houston since Hurricane Harvey. Don't forget, it was Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans that the SCG was the first major convention to come back. The same is true here in Houston. And uh, I think that really speaks volumes for our commitment and our opportunity. Secondly, and uh, somebody's got a better number this morning, uh, we were at about 3,500 registrants before the hurricane. It's just everything stalled. And uh, as of like yesterday morning, we were at 5,900. Uh, the numbers are bigger than that. There's a little side bet on whether or not we're going to break 750. Uh, walk-ons will be coming forward. So we're very optimistic that this is almost exactly the size of the convention we had planned before the hurricane even hit. We have 250 exhibitors, 11 education courses, 1,168, so round it up, 1,200 abstract presentations. Biggest technical program in history. That's huge. Uh, it's going to be a great conference. And uh, one of the things that I want to start uh, discussing a little bit about the SCG is uh, what we do. What well, we acquire, we process, we analyze data, we provide information for what? For exploration, development and production, petroleum, mining, and non-petroleum. And uh, we really have a very strong influence in the exploration part of the program. When exploration gets smaller, we are affected a lot. But this has happened in the past, of course, right? And we got better at production and development. 
Non-petroleum uh, geophysics is a vital part of what we do as well. And uh, the spillover and the overlap between those practices is what we do. We're scientists, and we're really good at this. So having said that, what is it people expect from us? Well, they expect us to figure out what's in the subsurface where the eyes and the ears of what's going on down there. Right? So the concept then is not just to uh, say what is there, but also what happens when you intervene. What happens when you drill, produce, extract, move, sequester, right? The dynamic of that is critical to us as well. And oh, what's the big exploration circle doing there? Well, that was a side trip that I made to Cambodia when I was in Thailand. It's just, just so cool, right? So I'd always read about Angkor Wat ever since I was a little kid. Uh, the Royal Road to Romance by, uh, by that great author from Princeton. Anyway, that was exploration for me. I loved it. Okay, uh, petroleum markets. Uh, the uh, next uh, speaker is going to do a lot more about uh, what's going on in petroleum markets, so I won't say anything more except that I drew two curves on the latest figures, one of which is that big curve that goes, big curve that goes up like that and then just drops precipitously. And then the other one, which is not a straight line, there's a little tip up to give us all a little hope. It'll take us about 30 years to get to $100 a barrel at that rate, but you know, where are we headed? We don't know where we're headed. We don't know where we're headed. We don't. We have to anticipate that the markets that we're in may in fact last for a long time. That's certainly possible. We have to look at our business that way. The SEG actually has a delay of about two years to three years in both the up markets and the down markets. So if it hasn't come up yet, we're not going to see that at the SEG for a few years. We have to anticipate these markets for a fairly long period of time. Okay. Having said that, what is it that our strategy is focused on? I want to thank John Bradford. John, you're in the audience somewhere, I know, right? John. John helped lead us in the direction of SEG strategy. Uh, we've had strategies in the past. Uh, this is a really solid one, uh, and that is this. You know what we do. Focus on technical excellence. That's what we do. Sustaining and advancing the science of applied geophysics resource extraction and management. Say oil and gas, but there are all of the others as well. Secondly, this is really important. We never really expressed it very well, and I think we're doing better at this. Unlocking the social contribution of geophysics applied to energy, water, and the environment. The social contribution. We don't just work, right? We actually have a major contribution to society. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Thirdly, increase this marketplace. Technical knowledge and products, IP, right? That marketplace, we have a role as a professional society to make that marketplace bigger for people. And finally, we should be the people that you pick up the phone when you hear the word geophysics and applied geophysics. That should be us. Everybody should recognize the SCG brand when we do that. So thanks, John. We're going to honor that strategy and move forward. What's the value proposition? What's the value proposition? If you are an SEG member, if you're becoming an SEG member, if you're trying to explain to somebody what it is, what do you get from the professional society? Let's just talk about membership. I'll claim that there are two channels. There's the get channel, 
and there's the give channel. And the get channel is the one where you have access to the best applied geophysics. World class, best ever. That's what you get. How do you get that? You get through speeches, you get it through courses, you get it through discussions. Uh, in addition to that, sharing those best practices. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You can't share everything if it's a secret. But on the other hand, the best practices that we have, we do share. This advances the entire profession. That's huge. And access to the geophysics markets, not just buying and selling the commodities, but the intellectual property. Think of that as the, what we actually do as well. But that's the get channel. What about the give channel? There are people in this audience that absolutely have to do geophysics every day. I mean, you just, I have to do about six hours, or I, or I go into withdrawal. I have to have my geophysics every day. I have to do that. I've got to find a place to do that, and I want to find a place to do that that's not in my, you know, in my extra spare room. This provides me the opportunity to do that. I can do geophysics. I'm so pleased by that. Secondly, advancing and solidifying the profession itself. Isn't it great? Every time you see geophysicists advancing and doing better, right? This is one of the most prideful, and rightly so, professions in the world. It's not a secret profession, but it's really cool. Advancing the profession, and finally, contributing to the social good, right? So let's talk about the social good for just a second. Social contribution of applied geophysics, uh, let's look at the projections. Uh, if we are at 9 billion people in the year 2050, and if we are getting 81% of our energy demands from hydrocarbons right now, what's it going to take for us to get to 2050 in an energy environment? We've got to have clean, fast, cheap energy. The hydrocarbons are going to be the way we have to do that. We've got to do it better, 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 cheaper, cheaper, cleaner, cleaner. Geophysicists do that. We do that. We provide the opportunity to drill fewer wells. Yeah? Cleaner, safer, faster, better. We do that. That's huge. Also, water resources. Will water be the next oil? No, it's a different market. But the water resources are, in fact, a, a huge component of what the future is going to be like. So let's not talk too much further about that, except for water being a big topic in Houston right now, right? You're too much of it, right? Uh, I'm tempted to uh, also be sure to draw your attention to the colorful map, because that is the world without water on it. It's only the rocks. And it's just so cool to remember, right, that you look in the ocean there in the Atlantic and you see that great big right, uh, divide where the plates are moving apart, right? You can fit, you know, North America. To... It was the geophysicist, Vine and Matthews, 1964, that published the magnetic stripes that was the nail that proved plate tectonics. Up until that time, it was a geological debate with many sides. Boom, geophysics changed the world on that. So, another great social contribution. We didn't invent plate tectonics. Uh, but speaking of inventing, Craig Beasley almost never acknowledges the fact that he personally got involved in helping bring forward, if not the only person, right? There are other people, but Craig was probably uh, the main driver of founding Geoscientists Without Borders. He did convince Berger to be the founding member. 
There are other people involved now, as you can see, that include Global and Kiwi and CGG. And uh, there are three, 38 projects now in 27 countries. Pick your favorite. Let's go with uh, volcanoes, right, which is the red one. Find where that is. Notice how many of these, by the way, I'm still trying to figure this out, are kind of southern hemisphere projects. That's interesting. But the point is that these are projects to support global communities in need. Let me show you an example of that. In Kenya, there is a refugee camp. That refugee camp has 200,000 residents. No fun in a refugee camp. Don't know if you've ever seen the pictures. My wife being an immigration attorney, um, <clears throat> refugee camps are something that we don't get to experience, but we know a lot of people that are, are in and out. In cooperation with UNHCR, the refugee agency, ISRA AD, Geophysical Data and Interpretation for Water Exploration, went forward to help supply fresh water. They're in great need. So, data was acquired, water table information was analyzed, they drilled three wells very successfully, and that's enough for 57,000 of those 200,000 refugees. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great story? Let's talk a little bit, though, about our population, okay? <clears throat> and what we do, but let's, let's talk about who we are. We're 27,000 members, 128 countries. I remember being in a council meeting not that long ago, 15 years, that's not that long, 15 years ago, right? And there was this big debate about what do we do about trying to become a global society? What shall we do? What shall we do, right? There was an enormous push. Lots of people were involved. We are now a 22% USA institution. Anybody that claims that the SCG is an American institution is so wrong, that's not only false information and misleading, that's bad to say that. We are not. We are a 78% non-USA organization. That's huge. That's very successful. In addition to that, think of the 377, and every day that I look at this, we have to be careful because the number keeps rising. 379, I think, is the right number if I corrected it, because the applications keep coming in. Student chapters, 67 countries. It's really exciting when you talk to those students, right? They are so jacked up about getting involved in geophysics. Anyway, global connectivity. Well, what about the demographic, right? The concept of, oh, well, we have uh, a whole bunch of people that are in their late stage of their career. I just personally made it into that last box on the right-hand side where it says 64 and over, right? Guilty, I'm in that box, right? But just behind me is another slightly taller, you know, box that's like 63 to, you know, 50, right? The younger people back in the 60s, right? Back behind that is a slightly lower, but not deep hole of people in their 30s and 40s and 50s. We also have the young professionals, and we have some students, and of course, anybody under 12 years old doesn't fit in that little box on the far left-hand side. 
So that demographic, you say, oh, I don't want that. I want to what? What do you want? You want a level demographic? You can do that, right? But that is not that far off of a level demographic. I challenge any of the other professional institutions that you know that are involved in our business to have a demographic that's that clean looking. They don't. There's a big hole. They've got a big hole. We've been working very hard to be sure that that hole isn't there. Let's be sure we get those young professionals there through the system. Very important. How do we do that? You know, young professionals aren't just students. They are people that have graduated and are trying to get work. Sometimes they get work right away. Sometimes they don't. We support students enormously. We provide them an educational opportunity and lots of coursework, great fundamentals, but they don't have experience. How long does it take to get really good in your profession? More than a year, more than two. It's not rocket science, it's actually a little harder. Yeah? I worked for NASA. This is a little harder than rocket science. It takes you five to ten years. That's a long time. How do you get that experience? Well, you have to get a job. How do you get a job? You don't have experience. It's a catch-22. There is a whole generation of people, and it's not just our industry, that are exa facing exactly the same thing. They're lawyers. And they go out and they work as unpaid interns for a couple of years to get the experience before they get their job. My daughter did this. I'm incensed that this has to happen. However, I did support her. She stayed with us, and we have other people that stay with us as well. Uh, that's part of our uh, contribution, right? In fact, Liz is not going to be there when Vanjie and I get home because she got a job in Chicago. So she's out of the house, and we have an open space. Point is, right, that there is a, a need for us in the SEG to recognize the entire spectrum of our profession, not just the people that have jobs like uh, hopefully you and I have, uh, but also people that are students that are arising. But what about that demographic in between? Let's talk about the young professionals. How do you get the experience for them? You know, I think that there's a way to do that. Think about a pilot trying to learn how to fly. Well, on-the-job experience. Co-pilot, co-pilot, co-pilot. And then, you know, you let them fly for a while, right? Well, what about flight simulators? What the heck is that? That's brilliant. You simulate the whole thing, you package it, you can train over and over and over and over, and nobody gets hurt if you make a mistake. Yeah? It's cheap, it's great, you should be able to do that. Why can't we do that with our industry? I say we can. There are other people out there that also tend to agree that it's possible to do that, and perhaps that's one of the things of the future for us. Anyway, that demographic, experiential learning, let's get that packaged project-based training for them, yeah? Uh, SCG Halliburton has got a program called Evolve. The Evolve program is essentially that, right? Packaging an um, uh, integrated uh, geology, geophysics, and engineering problem for the student groups to work together as a team. They don't just work for a day or an hour, right? They come up with, you know, answers to that. That sort of experiential training is huge. It's what we do encapsulated. What else? Uh, how do you measure the capabilities then? Uh, the SCG has got a certification program afoot to help that out, not a licensing. Please don't get confused with licensing. This is, 
drives me insane every time we have that discussion. Certification is nothing more than uh, basically saying, you know, we think that the quality level of your capability is about here. That's it. People do this and they call them diplomas at universities. Uh, anyway, early career management. Early career management. Let's pay attention to that demographic. They need us. More than just the schools, more than just the papers, more than just the uh, 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 courses that we can provide, they need to get that experience. Let's find a way to do that for them. Organizational capability. What else are we doing? SEG has spent about a year or so right, uh, trying to take a look in every uh, part of our business and ask the question, uh, how are we going to do better at what we do? Increase our markets, find a better revenue. One of the obvious things is make the most out of every person and every dollar you've got. Fair. Let's do that. Align the businesses. Volunteer management. We think that we can leverage the vault. You know how many people, you know how many people uh, are reviewers of the publication Geophysics? Take a guess. 100, 200, 300. How about 1,000 reviewers? 1,000 reviewers. You realize what that means? 1,000 reviewers. You know how many hours it takes to go through a geophysics paper? And then you've got to do it again, right, when it gets revised, right? You multiply that by the number of papers that we have, the number of dollars that goes into that. You realize how big that contribution is? Our calculation suggests that volunteer time donated in all the activities we do, what Craig is doing, everybody else into this, is equal to or exceeds the amount of revenue and money we get at the SEG itself. We have got to find a way to make that volunteer opportunity come alive and use it efficiently. That's our argument. Public awareness, yeah, we need to do better at that. Yeah? We really should. Uh, it's time for us to dress up and look good and get the SEG out there in the public domain. And governance, we'll take a look at streamlining governance. So is the internet the solution to everything? No, but we'll do the best we can with the tools that we've got. We are gonna do an organizational capability upgrade that's a good thing. Uh, partners. We talk about partners a lot. I've got one, two, three, four logos up here of uh, professional institutions we work with a fair amount. That's fair. There are other people we work with as partners. Partnerships work really well on a local level. Yeah? Somebody in the midst of Malaysia, right? The AAPG and the SCG and SPE work together and they, uh, so not all partnerships start at the top of the organization. I would argue it probably is actually better from the bottom. But let's talk about top-down practices. Our aim is to work with a combination, and these are afoot now, this is not just a hope, right? We're on the phone and we're talking to people and we're, uh, we have plans to do a combination of uh, demonstrating geophysical value. To who? The engineers, the people that have the money, the investors. What else? Experiential learning. We just talked about experiential learning. Uh, courses in business for applied geophysicists. That's a good idea. Uh, groundwater geophysical applications. Global near surface presence. Uh, notice that these uh, organizations, EAG, ESP, EA, uh, AAPG, and AGU, uh, are critical. I'm a member of uh, actually all of those, except for the SPE. I dropped that membership. 
Let's celebrate one thing. Geophysics. Geophysics, this is the 100th year of the patent application for Reginald Fessenden's original, you can find ore with remote geophysics patent. 100 years today. 2017, 100 years ago, right? That's where it started. I think that's great. I wish that I had remembered this, and I wish that I had pulled this together. But wherever Oz Yomaz is, Oz, where is you? Where is Oz? Oz is here somewhere. Oz, there's Oz. Thank you, Oz. Thank you, Oz, for reminding us. Thank you. One of Oz's many great contributions. Thank you very much. Geophysics. How about geophysics, geophysics? Let's mark this. Since 1936, 1936, geophysics has published the best applied geoscience information that we can all use in the world. It still continues to be the highest impact factor of any applied geoscience journal and uh, increased the impact factor yet again by another 10% this last year. High watermark for geophysics. Uh, I said 1,000 reviewers, that's wrong. It's 1,264 last year. That's 2016. 1,264 reviewers last year, 2016. 114 editors. 413 papers. That's not the only publication, but I wanted to make a special note, right? This is a great high watermark for geophysics. Love the interpretation journal and the TLE, by the way. I've been involved in those as well. Still am. But hey, geophysics, hats off, guys. What else? 10th anniversary. Uh, this is another unique thing that only the SCG does. The SCG Advanced Model Corporation, SEAM, has uh, had 37 different uh, participants uh, pool resources and uh, do the work right to define and design and then send out to get uh, synthetic work done for all sorts of exploration challenges like salt and subsalt and multiples, unconventionals, how to frack them and not, subcarse terrains, overhill foot, uh, foothills and overthrusts. Right? This is really interesting. It's benchmarking for data imaging, but SEEM has also provided and is currently providing interpretation challenges. Well, that makes sense. This is not just for migration people. It's uh, can you use the data and figure out what the geology is. It's unique in the following sense. Only with this type of really advanced capability of capturing all the real geology do you know the right answer. Yeah? It's the only place you know the right answer. All the other projects we work is a mystery. We got a good guess of what's happening between boreholes and et cetera. But we don't actually know. And we don't know how well we do, right? This provides us that opportunity. Interpretation challenges is what's the, quote, inverse, I hate that word, inverse problem. Yeah? Taking the data and trying to figure it out. Let's talk about a project that I think that you'll be appreciate. That's this. What about our contribution here? This is a project that's a production management life of field project. The demo for this is capturing the geology, simultaneously producing the field. You know what that is. That's reservoir simulation, right? Tracking all the fluids and the pressures, et cetera, the geomechanical effects, and the seismic data. 
all-in-one compassing, packaged down. It's not a desktop model, but it's awful close. Yeah? And you know how much this is going to cost you to get? $5,000 if you want to buy it. It's a terabyte. Right? If you're a nonprofit institution, it's $500 to get access to that information. That's the benchmark for experiential learning. You can teach everybody using that information. All the 4D effects are in there. It's elastic data. Anyway, I'm especially pleased that we're able to provide that as part of the uh, benchmarking opportunity for us in the analysis data of our work. Okay, so what about analysis? I'm going to steal a slide because I just love this, right? Where has it gone? Well, I got involved in 3D. I've been involved in subsalt, right? Uh, and full waveform imaging, as you know, right, has been a huge computational burn, right? I mean, you really burn a lot of cycles. But you're matching the pre-stack data. The reason I bring this up is the following. You see the big velocity thing in the upper left-hand side is the starting model. And the little arrow points to this little thread of low velocity. That's the reservoir. I happen to know this project. I was the chief geophysicist in West Australia, and I know what that looks like on seismic data. You can't find it like that in seismic data. You can't find it like that. You can now, and there it is. Full waveform imaging, as we know, is model-based data, model-based data iterative, right? Okay, so where does that take us? Computational. Exascale processing is going to be right over the horizon. That's a trillion, trillion floating point operations. We have all these volumes and attributes. The analysis of that is critical. Synthetic reality of the subsurface, think seen. Relational analysis, machine learning, cognitive computing. Yep, that could be the next one. And who knows how to run big machines better than geophysicists? I'll tell you, we're good at this. And where does that lead us? Anaheim. <laughs> Anaheim. There is going to be a great conference in Anaheim. Anaheim, of course, is close to Disneyland. Uh, we will have an international oil and gas conference. Uh, it will concentrate additionally on the Pacific Rim. We're inviting the country of Mexico to, uh, to bring forward uh, everything we're doing on the south end. In addition to that, a truly great international oil and gas conference of geophysics we're in cooperation with the AGDU on groundwater. California groundwater uh, minister is uh, actually our exhibition chair. Uh, in addition to that, big data analytics. Uh, we are already in connection with uh, all of the folks in Silicon Valley about, uh, and they're really interested in us. Also engineering geophysics and seismology. So Anaheim is gonna be, uh, it's gonna be a great conference. And uh, I'm hoping, certainly, that you'll seriously think about this, everybody that's here, to come because a whole lot of other people are going to come in addition. So I'm going to wrap up because uh, that's what I need to do. Uh, and to give a world of thanks, first of all, to everybody, as uh, Craig mentioned, on the steering committee, SEG staff and leadership, thousands of geophysicists who all contribute to the SEG community. Thank you. Sponsors, exhibitors, and supporters, City of Houston, George R. Brown Convention Center. See you in, see you in Anaheim.
Thanks, Bill, for that great talk. And I want to just take a moment to say uh, personally uh, and for uh, the rest of the SEG members, uh, we thank Bill and uh, his board of directors for all the wisdom and energy and innovation that they brought to the SEG this year. Thanks a lot. Well, now it's my uh, distinct pleasure to uh, introduce uh, our keynote speaker, uh, Steve Greenlee. Uh, Steve uh, is a longtime geoscientist. He's uh, joined the industry in the same year I did, 1981. I got to say, I think I've got a few more miles on me than he does, though. So uh, uh, he's been a, an SEG member uh, for that entire time, and uh, he's held many technical and management positions in ExxonMobil. Currently, he is president of ExxonMobil Exploration Company and VP of ExxonMobil Corporation. I don't know on the scale which of those is the more important, but I'll tell you what, it's, uh, both of them are pretty good jobs. He's responsible for worldwide exploration activities for ExxonMobil as well as geoscience functional excellence. So I don't think anybody is better positioned to give us a vision into the future of geosciences than Steve is, so let's welcome him to the stage. Thank you, Craig. And remember, we'll be taking questions. So write them down and we'll collect them as you get the questions uh, written. Thanks. Oh, there's a lot of you out there. Thank you for coming out this morning. And uh, it's a great pleasure to kick off the 87th um, SEG conference here in Houston. Um, the first picture I have um, here is uh, our uh, Hebron platform this June as it was getting towed out to be installed. And uh, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when I first was, uh, was asked and I accepted to, to talk to you today, I was thinking about, you know, what am I going to talk about to the, uh, the SAG uh, convention that's starting here. And I went down a lot of blind alleys and, you know, kind of came up short on a number of things. Spoke to some of you, helped me put my thoughts together. But I really thought maybe the best thing for us to talk about this morning was the theme of the conference, which is where technology and business connect. Kind of rings to me. Uh, those who do it really well position themselves to win in the marketplace. Those that don't do it very well always come up short. So it's super important for teams and companies to be able to do this well. And, you know, uh, it kind of brought me back to when I got hired. Um, you know, Craig mentioned that uh, I was hired in 1981. I hired on to Exxon Production Research Company back in 1981. And uh, I got hired to work in the seismic stratigraphy group there. And you might remember that Peter Vale had put together with his colleagues this uh, science of seismic stratigraphy, later sequence stratigraphy. And a bunch of us were hired. P Peter Vale was awarded the Virgil Kaufman Gold Medal by this society, later honorary membership. He's a big, you know, SEG, AAPG uh, uh, celebrity. Uh, but, but I will say, you know, we got hired on to bring this technology out to the business. A lot of us were called ourselves his disciples, and we moved through the... Uh, different Exxon organizations at the time bringing seismic stratigraphy through workshops, through uh, service projects, technical service projects, through technical training to try to connect that technology with the business and the business problems that they were working on. Great job. It was like one of the most rewarding jobs I ever had. And uh, sometimes I couldn't believe that they were paying me. So I, I'm sure that if any of my old supervisors out there 
are out there today, they're probably wondering why they paid me back then too. But it was, it was a, a good job to basically show me how hard this was. When you think about connecting technology businesses, very few people that really understand the breadth of technology that can be brought to any business problem. We certainly didn't when we were doing those workshops. No one, uh, and you know, typically we used maybe the wrong tool to, uh, to address some of the, the issues that we were working on. And similarly, we had even less of a, a good concept about what the business was doing. So really taking the right technologies and applying to the problems, doing the right things to address the business problems was very, very difficult. And I appreciate how difficult it actually is. So today what I wanted to do, and you, you know, and I'll, I'll mention that it's even more difficult when you talk about the pace of evolution of technology and the business. You know, back then we couldn't have imagined the kind of things we're doing now with geophysical data. Acquisition, processing, computing power, all those things that Bill was talking about, we could never have imagined that. And it's very difficult to stay up to date with what opportunities there are out there to apply technology. At the same time, the business is moving very, very quickly too. So matching this business challenge with the technology, I sort of think about as, you know, you're trying to shoot a clay pigeon, but you're running in the other direction as fast as you can at the same time. And trying to make them hook up is, uh, is an extraordinarily difficult problem. So this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about the business. I'm going to talk about the evolution of the business, how we got to where we are, where we think we're going. Um, talk about the state of the business, where, uh, you know, where I think we need to go relative to the geophysics industry. And I have a list of kind of imperatives that I think we can talk about to uh, put the context of the challenges that are in front of us in perspective. So, uh, so that's, that's where I'm going. And uh, we'll have, as, uh, as Craig mentioned, we're going to have some time for Q&A afterwards. So Bill put the, uh, a slide up that showed our cyclical commodity business. This is crude price. And you know I, I could put up a chart here for a natural gas price in the US. And it might look similar, although skewed in time a little bit. But throughout most of the 21st century, we've lived in a period of time of growing and high crude oil prices. And those crude oil prices were driven by a perception that resources, resources were short, they were expensive, they are hard to come by, and the future saw them as becoming even more difficult to come by. And really, it wasn't until uh, later in, the, in, the, in this time period, in 2014, when we started to see that uh, all of that didn't kind of make sense. We had technology deliver a lot more barrels than the world was ready to consume, and that resulted in this dramatic price fall that we've seen, and of course the, the rest is history and you know all that. At the same time, the industry, which was driven by that same perception of rising crude oil prices, scarce resources, was investing ever more in the business. And that was development, that was exploration, that was uh, you know, people investing in, uh, in all facets of the business. And you can see that it's about a 6x growth in capital expenditure. And that was in a period of time where cost structure was growing dramatically to 2x, 3x, 4x cost structure for different parts of our business. So the result was maybe a bit predictable. You know, we enjoyed all the revenue growth from rising prices. We enjoyed the high revenues from high oil prices. But at the same time, uh, we were over-investing. And you can see that the uh, uh, profitability, which is shown on the, uh, the dotted line, industry, earnings before income tax, that started falling off well in advance of the crude price uh, collapse. 
And so you can see that we overinvested and uh, we were driven at the time by growth as a metric and uh, the growth as a metric didn't result in a, uh, in a uh, sustainable profit situation for the industry. And so this is the industry as a whole. Um, not all that different for the geophysical industry. You can see the net income from the geophysical industry. It collapsed just a bit sooner, but also that flood of investment, that overinvestment resulted in a collapse in the profitability in the geophysical industry with some rebound in 2016. So that's kind of how we got to where we are today. And uh, all of us are in this same boat working together. So one of the, uh, I think the really kind of weird paradoxes of the time that we live in today is, uh, you know, we've been exploring and spending a lot more money on exploration through the last couple of decades. And the result of that, with a couple of very notable exceptions, has not been very fruitful. We haven't found a lot of conventional resource over the last 10, 15 years. Certainly not enough to replace production. Um, but, you know, if you take a look at both crude oil and natural gas, our view uh, and the view of others that, that, that are out there of what is remaining, the global endowment of resource, is growing. Um, we have a lot more resource perceived out in the world today than we did at the turn of the century. So, so how could this be? Well, you know the, what the answer of that, to that is. Um, unconventionals. Unconventionals have changed the game. Unconventionals have changed everything. North American unconventionals have changed all of our business models. The strategies that were in place in 2000 are not valid strategies for us to work on today. And you may say, well, you know, are the unconventionals any good? Is that a lasting phenomenon? Well, the unconventionals also can have very, very solid economics. And so, you know, we um, just talk about the Permian. Everybody talks about the Permian. Uh, we did a significant acquisition at ExxonMobil uh, this, this last year to pick up an additional Permian position from, uh, from Bopco, from Bass, and that doubled our Permian exposure to 6 billion barrels of resource. That's a lot of resource. And the economics for that development, the average uh, supply cost per barrel uh, that the uh, IEA would talk about for the Permian is $40 to $45, and our assessment is lower than that. So they have pretty good economics, very, very competitive, and it weighs all of our other activities against the economics that are provided by the, the Permian. Uh, so they're uh, very high quality, um, they can deliver superior economics, and they have very, very strong materiality as we move forward. At the same time, uh, following the price collapse, we've worked really hard on reducing costs and having techno technology and good, solid work uh, done on existing developments to try to make their break-even costs lower. So at the same time that we have this new flood of uh, unconventional resources, many of our other projects in deep water, conventional projects, their break-even supply costs have gone down as well. So in essence, what we've done is deliver a lot of additional resource that is commercial and available. So we have a lot of choice in the resource. That's why a lot of people would say we're in this era of abundance or this age of abundance. Um, so, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. So supply is growing, but we have to remember so is demand. And on this chart you can see, uh, you know, production, which is a million barrels uh, of oil equivalent per day, so it's oil and, and natural gas. Uh, 
and it shows what is sort of the, the big issue. And, you know, we're in a depletion industry. We have to find and develop more oil and gas to be able to just stay constant. Uh, to grow is even more difficult. And so what this shows, this is from the IEA, and this is from a, uh, one of their scenarios that talks about new policies being enacted for emissions controls. So it's a relatively conservative uh, forecast of, uh, of uh, supply demand. But you can see that uh, as we go forward into the future to 2040, in order to stay constant and grow slightly, we need to almost replace the entire world's producing base in terms of volume. Uh, and that's an incredibly difficult task as we look forward. It's daunting. Uh, the IEA suggests that hydrocarbon uh, development during this period of time is going to cost $27 trillion. Um, I don't know if that's the right number, but all I know is that uh, the, ac the actual activities related to growing the demand but just keeping it constant uh, are going to be a real challenge for our industry. And moving forward is going to be uh, a, a, a very difficult task for us. So demand for our products, for the kind of things that we deliver to the world, is, uh, is, is a big issue as we move forward. So this is from our energy outlook. And I wanted to show this uh, because you may say, well, OK, so we've got this huge issue of meeting demand as we move forward. We've got huge investment requirements. We've got technical challenges. What are the kind of resources, just talk about liquids, what are the kind of resources that we're going to need as we move forward? And this just shows. Um, you know, uh, volumes on the uh, x-axis and then time going out to 2040 on the other axis. And so I want to show this because it's all kinds of resources are going to be needed to meet that demand as we move forward. The green just shows decline and work on the developed conventional. So you think about that as our conventional base, the producers, projects, all that, trying to mitigate demand as we move forward. And then there's going to be a lot of new projects that come on. You can see that in the light green wedge deep water in blue, and then tight oil in that lighter colored green above that. So not only is there going to be uh, a lot of work needed in the base, but entirely new additive work being uh, required in tight oil to be able to supply that. So it's not just like we're going to grow one resource type at the expense of others. We're going to need to be working on all these different resource types as we move forward. So I, got, I, I have a, a number of slides where I'm going to talk about these imperatives, and they're all subordinate to this one. Um, as we move forward, $27 trillion is a lot of money. Replacing the entire production, producing base right now is a, is a very difficult task. But every single one of our decisions that we make on a project, if we decide to go explore, if we are trying to figure out what blocks we're going to pick up, if we decide where we're going to drill, if we're going to drill, where we're going to drill, if we decide whether we're going to sanction a project, if we decide whether we're going to continue with an infill drilling program, it all relies on geophysical data. One way or another, it all comes back to the geophysics and the geology. And right now, the most important thing for us is that we need to have a healthy, competitive geophysical industry one that makes the cost of capital, one that continue to invest in capacity, one that can, can compete for our work, and one that has enough capacity to be able to continue to develop technology. And that is the key challenge that we all face. I, you know, and, and obviously we all have some ideas, but uh, that's a very, very difficult but important task as we move forward. Geophysical data, I mentioned, is 
uh, a part of everything that we do. But if we think about this world that we're living in now, which is maybe this world of resource abundance, but what I would say it's a world of more choices. Uh, what companies make the best choices and fill their portfolio full of resources that deliver the best outcomes are the winners. They're the ones that are going to succeed in the marketplace, and those that have higher cost of supply portfolios are going to lose. That's a fact. And the way that we can figure out which side of that ledger we're going to be on is from the good decisions that we make. Selectivity with the types of resources that we pursue and execution with the quality with which we can actually execute these projects. And they all come down to our valuation of geophysical and geological data. So the geophysics that we see in the future has to be tied into the business to be able to support those kind of decisions. This is not about inexpensive seismic. This is not about cheap seismic. This is all about quality of seismic, seismic data that has the quality which enables us to make those decisions. When we take a look at these big multi-client surveys, when we look at proprietary surveys, it's all about supporting those decisions which lead to a low-costed supply portfolio. When I first started thinking about my discussion today, um, I was thinking about you know, how the geophysical industry is going to um, evolve to meet the needs of the new production that's out there. And as I mentioned before, unconventionals are here to stay and they're growing. Our, in ExxonMobil, our CapEx is being skewed more to unconventionals than it was in the past. When you look at a lot of uh, players in North America, mid-size uh, independents and all that, a lot of those folks are just doing un un North American unconventionals. They've taken their international deep water programs, international exploration programs, and they migrated all of that into the North American unconventional space. Why? Because it has pretty good economics, it's very short cycle, because it has um, low above ground risk relative to some of the other things that they're working on, and it, it can have the materiality to make for a, a viable production portfolio. They're here to stay. But typically, we've seen them as lower intensity from a geophysical standpoint, as you might see some of the other resource types that are out there. So I was thinking, is this a liability that uh, is out there for the geophysical industry? Of course, we use geophysical data to uh, understand structure and uh, steer our wells. And increasingly, we use attributes to try to understand um, you know, small-scale faulting or rock properties or whatever. But I think as we move forward, if you think about the nature of unconventionals, they're really hard to explore. It's really hard to go into a basin and define an unconventional play. You have to drill a lot of wells. You have to pick up a lot of acreage. It takes years. The degree to which new geophysical technology can short circuit some of that and make it cheaper, that's going to be a winning proposition. So I think it's a real opportunity as the industry matures some of the technologies that are useful for these types of resources, for them to broaden, for the industry to broaden its uh, uh, opportunity base, to broaden its op opportunity to find additional revenue. So I, I think it's an opportunity, but certainly one that we can talk about. With that discussion, uh, if you remember the chart before, Conventional and deep water continues to underpin our future investment. It's about 60% of the investment as we move forward. You think about unconventionals as additive on top of that, but it's still an enormous amount of investment. And I didn't want to talk about unconventionals and not talk about you know, deep water, land, conventional seismic, and all that as growing uh, and, and the need for high-quality data in that. And this is our uh, uh, rig that's running offshore Guyana. 
Um, and I just mentioned that because that particular project has break-even supply costs, which are very competitive with the Permian. Um, it's a project that, uh, you know, is, is very geophysically intensive, mostly stratigraphic accumulations, and one in which, uh, you know, right now we're shooting the third 3D seismic uh, survey as a baseline 4D project over LISA, uh, which is the first discovery that we made there. And so geophysics is a, just a huge part of us being able to not only find it, but to commercialize it and to develop it in a way that's cost effective and can compete with a, a lot of these very low cost of supply projects that are out there. It's kind of cut off, isn't it? It says, te today's technology is not good enough. I think this slide demonstrates that. <laughs> And this is not whining, you know, I'm not whining because technology is not good enough. But frankly, it's not good enough. You know, we have a, a big gap between what we need and what we've got right now. To find the data, to amass the data, to build a database, to interpret the data, to make project, uh, uh, to make um, uh, uh, products out of the data, to review it, it just takes too long. Even with all the great systems that we have out there, you know, we can't get at all our data. And all of these technologies, some that Bill was mentioning before, are going to revolutionize that. We need to stay on that track because we're on the cusp of a revolution in our ability to access and interpret all these data. I could talk about the quality of the data, and, and, and Bill talked about FWI and all those, those different things. We need those. We need those because the risk profile is still not right for the kind of product that we're putting and the kind of cost that we incur trying to explore. So there is a huge demand, and that's why I say it's important for the geophysical industry and for the, um, the oils to be able to continue the research to be able to deliver technology that is going to be much better than what we see today. We can't afford to spend months and months on projects that should take weeks or days. Now, this is another demonstration of a technology problem. But what it says on here is regulations need to match reality. And this is a picture of a whale off of Sakhalin, which is off the east coast of Russia, where we have a very significant project, have for 15 years. And during the summer, the whales come in and they eat lunch. And they, they exist, coexist with the projects. And so consequently, we've been studying these whales for a long, long time. We've had a number of long-term research projects. And I only mention that because as we look at the regulatory environment that's out there, it needs to be based on sound science. And the only way that it's going to be completely based on sound science is if we all work together to try to fund the programs that are going to deliver the science that can uh, make for a viable regulatory program. The IGC, I went to a lunch yesterday, they're all over this, uh, working towards the uh, advocacy efforts. But none of the advocacy efforts really matter if they don't have a scientific baseline. So as you know, uh, they've been working with 11 member companies in this sound and marine life pro uh, project, $60 million into it. And that has been really instrumental in providing the kind of real data, the real science that these types of regulations are based on, need to be based on. And it's absolutely critical for the future of our industry, for everything that we do, that that science and that baseline science exists to be able to inform those regulations. If you pull up uh, our industry on the, on the web and you see what's written about uh, marine mammals and the, uh, the effects of seismic on marine mammals, 
you'll just find a tremendous amount of misinformation that's not based on any of the available science that's out there. It's more ideological, and it, it, it's really a, a significant threat to your industry, to our industry, to the whole uh, uh, way of us uh, being able to deliver those resources that we need. And that leads to kind of my last uh, imperative, which is uh, uh, about our public relations issues. Um, I think we talked about the next generation that's coming in. The sustainability of our industry, especially with the crew change that's going on now, is really a, a function of the folks that we can bring. We need to bring the best minds into our, uh, into our industry. And that's, that's a hard, again, with the kind of things that you read, which are not based on reality, uh, the kind of things that you read is a, is a very difficult uh, problem for us. We need to get people, the educators exposed, the kids exposed, to the kind of problems and the kind of careers that are available uh, within the context of the energy industry. This picture here is from uh, one of our uh, ExxonMobil field schools that we run for, uh, um, uh, for students that we're taking out in the field, expose them to real-world geoscience programs, problems. Uh, we run this uh, SEG Exxon Mobil Student Education Program, which ran this weekend. Had a chance to sit in on that for a, a little while to educate and show students real problems that we're working on, uh, get them exposed to the kind of real work that we do and the kind of careers that we offer. I saw Chevron also has a leadership program. Shout out to Chevron for doing that. And for the other societies, we all try to do similar programs associated with the uh, work in these societies to try to bring this, uh, what we really do and the kind of, uh, um, kind of careers that we have. And it, th these, are valid, these are valid questions that kids have, you know. Uh, does the energy industry have interesting problems? Is it uh, a lasting career? Is it something I can uh, work through my whole career? All these different things. And I think as, as we can answer them honestly and more straightforward and show them what we're doing, I think we're going to have a, a much better time. But the, last, the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, universities, university programs. It's really important for us to continue to engage with universities and support universities for them to be able to also deliver the kind of students that we're going to be needing in the years to come. Uh, I know a lot of this, the uh, universities uh, here in Texas have uh, effective outreach programs. I work with the University of Houston, and it's a rich opportunity for annuitants from the different companies to try to come in as adjuncts to work with the departments to offer some of the things that you've uh, grown up with and you can add to, uh, to their educational opportunities to comment on their curricula and all that. And some of these, the University of Houston has an outreach program where they meet with the different uh, companies that are involved in energy and try to get uh, their curriculum aligned with some of the key issues and what's really important to them. So that's, I think that that's really necessary and the next generation will define the quality of how our industry moves forward and how the geophysical industry moves forward. So I'll finish with just a picture of, uh, this is the Hebron platform getting installed uh, later in June. Uh, it's sitting out there today and they're drilling the wells that'll be producing Hebron for the next uh, few decades. Um, and, and I'll just, I'll fi finish by saying that um, I think the challenge ahead of us is very clear. You know, we have to replace the existing pr producing base. We have to develop those resources that are going to be the highest quality resources to satisfy the needs of society. The problems ahead of us are also uh, very, very large. The path to solving those problems is not clear. Uh, so we do have uh, the work that you do and the work that you're going to be doing in the convention later 
and in your everyday work is super important. I mean, it's, and you ought to be really proud to be doing that work because these are, these are problems that have to be solved. These are, uh, uh, these are resources that have to be delivered to society. So, uh, you know, so look forward to, uh, look forward to the convention and wish, uh, wish SEG a, a great convention moving forward. Thank you for attention, and uh, I think we're ready for uh, setting up for some questions. Thank you. Thanks for the great presentation. Uh, we're going to invite Bill Abriel back onto the stage, and uh, remember to write your questions on an index card, and we'll Thank take. You some questions and answers and I see they're bringing out some uh, bar stools for us to get a little more comfortable. Nothing relaxes a geophysicist any more than to have the bar stools. See it says SEG Anaheim, California. If we just had a real bar and some paper napkins now we might actually come up with some research ideas right here but uh, we're going to take uh, a few questions. Uh, let me uh, get the first tranche here but uh, Please continue to write your questions even as we uh, answer. Okay. Well, here's uh, right on top kind of a familiar one from other downturn environments I've experienced. Uh, seismic, well, I won't read the whole thing. Basically, it says uh, everyone is under pressure. Seismic service companies have uh, merged. Some of them have gone out of business. Staffs have been reduced. The same is true in oil companies. How are we going to get research done? I'll just hand that off to uh, Bill. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Greg. Uh, but it's an interesting thought. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think is probably true uh, is that we've seen, as you know, in the industry, uh, a shift in uh, basic research investment from uh, the substantial producers, right? Like, for instance, I was in La Habra, California at our research laboratory there, the big campus, right? To a combination of uh, universities where the universities uh, and the service organizations were spending more time in the research to what's probably the better model, uh, and I'm surprised we're not doing it more, which is cooperation. Why would you expect 28 organizations to independently put their research position into the same thing when you can get all 28 companies to share a percentage of that? That makes all kinds of sense to me. Uh, we're competitors, uh, and at the same time, we're partners. There probably isn't a single project you can think of that you don't have a partner. Sometimes you don't, but most of the time you do. We compete in the general market, that's fine, right? But in general, we're partners. We can easily be partners in research. I see no problem. I do see issues with uh, trying to engage that only with universities. Universities have their own business model. Uh, we have a collective opportunity. Uh, I saw this happen uh, in uh, Texaco, uh, had instituted something they called Deep Star. Gulf of Mexico was uh, going to uh, go into a strong uh, deep water operation. All the companies had to figure out how to deal with those temperatures and environments and et cetera. And Texaco said, look, this is really silly. Why not organize uh, that into a cooperative research project, right? Which it did. 
and uh, it significantly advanced the opportunity. So my argument would be pretty straight up, right? Cooperation. Cooperative economic model for research makes all kinds of sense to me. Well, thanks. I, I'm sure Steve and I could both comment. We've got a pile of questions here, so let's uh, get on to some of the other ones. Uh, so I guess this falls mainly in your uh, area of expertise, Steve. You talked a lot about the shales, and I'm, I'm rephrasing a little bit and combining a couple of questions because they're, they're pretty similar. So two things about the shale that people seem to be, be wondering about. Um, how fast really can uh, producers turn around and turn on the tap in response to oil prices? That's the first question. How elastic is that production really going to be? And the second one is related to regulations and fracking, and where do we stand on that in terms of the shale as well? Mm -hmm. I think I'm probably more able to comment on the prior rather than the latter. Um, I think from our last little price cycle that we saw where we had prices go over $50 for a little while, we saw a tremendous increase in the number of rigs that were operating out in the Permian. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's, there's a, uh, there is a lag, obviously, as a service uh, companies can't, um, you know, adjust quick, uh, quickly and, and all that. But it's remarkably elastic. It can happen quite quickly. You know, right now we're making 2.5 million barrels a day in the Permian. I'll just stick with the Permian. We make 2.5 million barrels a day. Um, I saw Chevron uh, last week talked about another million and a half barrels a day that they're talking about. Um, you know, before the uh, end of the decade. Others, ourselves included, uh, you know, anticipate that there'll be continued growth after that. So there, there will be these cycles that are related to prices, but the long-term trajectory for some of these very high-quality resources is for increasing production. So um, ultimately, what we're looking at in some of these resources, Permian in particular, are quite high volumes that will last for decades. So for us in our business, we really need to understand that that puts uh, significant pressure on prices as we move forward. Because maybe not an instantaneous reaction, but over long long, the long term, that production at quite low cost of supply is going to be out there on the market and is going to measure the other opportunities for investment that we have against that. So. Um, I guess that's to say that the old days of maybe less discipline in investing um, on some of the supply cost projects that are quite high, we don't see them coming back uh, for the near term because of this supply uh, that's going to be hanging out there in, the, in these unconventionals. Well said. Thank you. And I guess really following on to that, uh, and a question that's been on my mind for a long time as well, is which other countries are going to be able to replicate the uh, shale revolution that we've seen in North, uh, in North America. If, if I, like, knew that, do you think I would tell all of you? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I, I mean, I, I think the, the real gist of the question is it's really hard to replicate the uh, North American <laughs> infrastructure and the North American business model. Um, it's, as you can see in Argentina, it's terrific rocks in Argentina. It's coming more slowly because of the, some of the issues that have to be addressed there. Um, but eventually, uh, there will be other players. Now, is there going to be another Permian? That's a, you know, another two and a half, five million, six million barrel a day uh, deal coming on? Well, that, that remains to be seen. Um, 
But it is remarkable, honestly, that there has not been uh, an, you know, a, a great number of additional resources that have been recognized that are competitive with uh, the North American resources. I understand your reluctance to share that information. Uh, I guess we have some ExxonMobil shareholders who also won't, don't want you to share that information. <laughs> well, uh, I, I guess this one is, is for Bill, uh, since it relates to SEG. Uh, are you in contact with uh, geotechnical engineering communities and other societies about ways that we can uh, continue to expand the careers of, of geophysicists more into the production and drilling environment? <clears throat> yeah, and not enough. <clears throat> what I'd like to say is that uh, it's uh, very true that uh, we have a need uh, as a profession uh, to get uh, closer to the uh, engineering components of uh, what we uh, do in conventional, unconventional, uh, and the other parts of engineering geophysics. Uh, I'm not as uh, ready to discuss uh, everything that the SEG is doing in that direction, but what I can tell you is that there are a number of initiatives, uh, and those initiatives, uh, look for those on the web pages, look for those uh, in the institutions. Uh, we are uh, working directly with engineering institutions, groundwater institutions, uh, near-surface applications, uh, and especially keen to uh, get ourselves in a position of uh, pointing out how much value we add to the reservoir engineering community. I think that's really important. Right? One of the useful things that I was able to do uh, in my career is in New Orleans, uh, uh, there was one guy there who was the only development geophysicist for the whole corporation, and I got to work for him. Uh, we developed a team of geology, geophysics, and engineering, first in the world. Total found out about it and copied it, right? Uh, and after that, we've seen this occur in different places. So this team went around to different projects as a combined integrated practice, looked at the economics and the needs for each of those projects. That was just a whole lot of fun. It wasn't siloed. It was all pulled together. We need to be more engaged in that type of activity, a much more integrated practice, uh, a lot closer to the engineering community. Do we have any other uh, questions? We've covered most of these at this point. There's a couple of uh, private questions for Steve for ExxonMobil, like can you provide us a speaker or something? Please take those offline with Steve. I won't put him on the spot on the stage. Uh, well, let's see, what do you see as the most valuable social or economic application of geophysics in the future outside of the petroleum industry? That one's yours. Well, I th uh, thanks, Bill. Uh, you know, we, we think of ourselves as physicists and geophysicists, but I think uh, maybe Bill said it in his talk, it's hard to read the slides backwards when you're backstage, but uh, we're, we're, if you abstract what geophysicists do, we really work in remote sensing. And uh, we're pretty good at it in our, our domain. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities, in particular people changing careers, uh, th that you can transfer your skills, for example. Um, I did that myself. I, was never, I never took a course in geophysics, for example. <laughs> I was a mathematician. But let me pass on something that I learned uh, from uh, that transition early in my life and career, is be humble. When you, <laughs> when you want to go into another industry and you think you know something about it, 
You know, I, I studied differential equations. I did my PhD in partial differential equations, and I thought, well, I can come into, these boys do the wave equation, that's pretty simple, really, uh, in the world of PDEs, I, maybe I can help them out, you know? Well, I got into the job and I found out that, uh, you know, the oil industry had attracted some pretty good people already <laughs> to do these sorts of things. So. Uh, you can come and add things in other sciences, but uh, be humble because where there's money, it attracts uh, scientists who are, who are quite good. But having said that, coming with a different perspective always is advantageous. So anything involving remote sensing, and you know, if you think about technology trends right now, we are wiring the entire universe. Everything is getting sensors implanted. Your car has all sorts of stuff. I mean, my wife keeps doing it around the house, putting, uh, you know, cameras in places and things like this. You need to watch out that, for that remote sensing stuff. But uh, we have a role that we can play as geoscientists, but, you know, uh, I'm only saying that for people who might be thinking of exploring other careers. I think that the oil industry has uh, challenges ahead of it, particularly Steve outlined for geoscientists. Our biggest challenge is to understand how geophysics can play a large role in the shale revolution because I think it's quite clear from Steve's slides that that's where a lot of the oil is going to come from. And I look at it as an opportunity because uh, today we don't play a very major role in the whole scheme of things. Yes, we do things, wonderful things with data. Bill showed you some things, but we have to revolutionize our timeline. We have to acquire data faster. We have to become relevant to the drilling and production operations. And those things move quickly, unlike the deep water that we've been used to. So we do have challenges ahead of us, but that's, those are opportunities. So, you know, if you're thinking of switching careers, I would say uh, stick with it a little longer. <laughs> well, here's, here's one about uh, employment. How specifically can we uh, address the diversity issues in a large oil company and in a large service company? We have challenges in diversity in particular. The one I've always faced is, is how do we uh, get gender diversity into our workplace? And I struggled with it my entire career, so I look forward to some wisdom on this question. <laughs> Steve. I, I can start with the, the, the gender diversity question. Um, you know, my wife was a, a geophysicist uh, for Exxon years and years ago, uh, a long time ago in the Cretaceous when we first started. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was very, very difficult uh, during that time to, uh, to, to navigate some of the, uh, the career maze that we have uh, as, as a woman. Today, it's, uh, it's, it's a very different availability. We're hiring at um, the availability for women, which in uh, geosciences is about 40%. About half of the folks that we bring into the organization are women. Um, so the larger issue for us is to be able to create the environment, the opportunity slate, the early career opportunities for women uh, to get at, uh, equal or at least equal opportunities to be able to advance and to be able to convert into executives and leadership, convert into senior technical professionals uh, as men. Um, We've made a lot of strides in that, and we have to do, you know, uh, Rex Tillerson, who used to be my boss, now he's working for another company. Um, 
he had he, he had a dis he, he was talking about what they're doing at the State Department, and one of the things that they're doing at the State Department is for every uh, available senior level job, there has to be a woman on the list of, of candidates, so that you recognize that there you know that there is a, an opportunity to bring a woman into that job. Well, he brought that from Exxon Mobil. That's that's what we do, and and the reason we do it is is uh, just to remind ourselves that. For all of these early jobs and for these later jobs, um, U.S. paid minorities, uh, uh, women, um, we can frequently have an unconscious bias to not provide them the jobs uh, that are necessary for their advancement at the same uh, at the same pace as white males, and so we do that very consciously, and it's very helpful for us because it makes sure that we self-evaluate any bias that we might have. And so we're making a lot of progress. Our challenge, quite honestly, is to, now that we have uh, a very representative uh, gender diversity, representative female population, is to make sure that we keep them and we get them converted into the senior leadership positions and the senior technical positions uh, commensurate with the rest of our population. And that's what we're working on. And uh, hopefully we'll be uh, completely representative uh, within the next several years. Well, th thanks for that. And, and uh, we are running out of time in terms of what we've allotted for the questions. Uh, we've addressed most of them, but I think I'll wind up with uh, one that I, I feel is very appropriate, uh, especially for our, our speakers here. Uh, so to both uh, uh, Steve and Bill, uh, both of you have talked about the strategies for uh, how your organizations, well, Bill, it's almost your ex-organization. You're, you know, moving on in a couple of days. But from what you've done with the SEG in terms of strategy and from ExxonMobil's strategy for geoscientists, can you comment, how do you feel that these two align uh, between ExxonMobil, which is an important uh, constituency, and uh, an SEG? I'll just say that we have, we have um, a real issue with the health of the geophysical industry. Um, everything that we're doing, you know, to be able to, uh, uh, to do our business well, to be able to grow our business, to be able to make uh, the best choices is uh, all dependent upon a vibrant geophysical industry and a sustainable geophysical industry and an industry that has increasingly... Um, Increasingly uh, better command of the technologies that we that we need. So I think there's pretty good alignment in that respect because I think those are some of the key things that are um, of importance to the SEG. I think we're pretty aligned in that respect, and to the extent that our folks, our members of SEG, sit on the leadership uh, uh, committees within the uh, uh, within SEG, uh, I think we need to continue to work together towards uh, towards those ends. And uh, these are really hard problems. There's no easy answers to, uh, uh, to these problems. Low prices, uh, all of us uh, have to deal with those uh, as well and, and the, the costs that come with, with all that. So um, engagement, I think we're aligned in purpose. And uh, I know that we really appreciate the efforts of SEG to, to kind of address these uh, key issues that I talked about. Bill, you just escaped from a large oil company not too long ago. How do you view the uh, alignment between SEG and, the, and larger oil companies? 
Yeah, I guess I would uh, probably go ahead and uh, agree with Steve that uh, the uh, overlap between uh, purpose and mission is uh, very strong. Uh, I believe that uh, that is true of uh, all of the uh, partners and stakeholders that we've had at the SCG for the last 75 years. There really isn't a difference between the interests of the SCG and being an extremely good professional society and those are the people that uh, actually work with uh, and need and use those professions. Uh, that's exactly how it should be. Uh, I don't see that being different in the future. Uh, we're going to be adapting, uh, but we're not going to uh, we're not going to lose sight of the fact that uh, we've got uh, a long, strong, and steady partnership, uh, and also that we do what we do. We're really, really good professionals. A little more integrated would be nice, and I think that that's appropriate. Uh, that seems appropriate in the uh, as we go forward. Uh, but we will always honor those strong partnerships and look forward to uh, working with uh, all of the volunteers that want to make the profession of geophysics better. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we, we could go on for a long time, but the exhibition and all the uh, fruits of knowledge await us there. So let me draw this to an end, and please join me in thanking our two speakers this morning. It's been an excellent session. Steve, well done. Thank you. Let's go, man. Done. Thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. At seg.org slash podcast, you will find all Seismic Sound Off episodes. Subscribe to Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to receive the latest episodes first. If you enjoy the show, review us on Apple Podcasts. Your review helps others find the show. Season 1 of Seismic Sound Off is sponsored by the SEG Wiki home to hundreds of biographies of key geoscientists, geophysical tutorials, and core content from the science of applied geophysics. Visit wiki.seg.org to learn how you can grow the world's first online geophysics encyclopedia. Original music by Zach Bridges. Special thanks to Kay Baker, and thank you to Freeman for recording. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off. <laughs>